You're listening to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. I'm John Horner Eibler from Unity Lutheran Church. I'm this week's host. So in our great biblical tradition, uh, I think most people are aware that the, the, the Bible talks about God's uh, creation being great and good and awesome, and that human beings are uh, caretakers or responsible for that creation. And that's all true, but the, the Bible is, is way more than that about the creation in which we live. The, the, the scriptures are just filled with passages that are amazed and awed by the wonder and detail and beauty and power and destructiveness and also life-givingness of the creation. And we as human beings live within that with responsibilities towards it. But I think scripture has a really good sense of just always appreciating it and, and doing all we can to learn more about its small details and how they affect everything else in our lives. This gets us this week to the topic of honeybees. One of the tiniest creatures that you can see buzzing around and yet they pollinate so many different things and are um, a, a make something delicious like honey, but maybe they can sting us too. So we've got a lot to talk about to appreciate honeybees and we've got two beekeepers with us this week. Uh, one, Steve Dolan, welcome to the podcast, Steve. Hi, John, it's nice to be here. Great to have you. And our other guest is Bob Zembinski. Welcome to Belief Beat, Bob. Hi, John. I'm glad to be with you this morning, or today, I should say. Yeah, that's okay. We're, yeah, we're recording this one on uh, the Saturday morning of the Labor Day weekend. So right now it's sunny and nice outside. Uh, hope it's that way wherever you happen to be listening. So uh, let's get started with uh, the, the, the very basic stuff. Bob, I'll go to you first. Uh, tell us how long you've been a beekeeper and how did you get interested in it in the first place? Well, I've been a beekeeper, John, for about 10 years. I've ha had bees. Uh, I was always interested in bees, I guess. I, I like honey. And I, I guess as I look back at my family history, at some point in the past, uh, on either, either side of my family, which was immigrated here, they operated farms. And so they were reliant in some manner or fashion uh, on bees for the crops that they produced. And, and uh, I think that's what kind of led me to it. Uh, I, and it's just very interesting. Uh, what I did like about it, it, it you can spend as much time as you want on it. It doesn't uh, take a lot okay. of time. The bees sort of manage themselves. Cool, awesome. Steve, same question. You, uh, I know you're in it more recently, but how did you get started and where did that interest come from? Uh, in my youth uh, as a high schooler, we had uh, sort of a hobby farm and uh, raised chickens and chickens sold their eggs and uh, profits from selling eggs underwrote the expenses of the goat, pig, sheep, feed. Uh, and I was uh, looking looking for something else to sort of subsidize and branch out. And I think I, and we had a neighbor who was keeping bees. So I decided to make all the woodenware, the hives in the shop class. Uh, and I got shut down by my shop teacher because the expense was pretty high. So I had to sort of table that. And you know, life's journey takes yeah. you from here to there and that to this. And always in the back of my mind was sort of returning to to beekeeping and as we're becoming empty nesters and looking for uh, property, Lynn has always, my wife has mentioned, well, we could get something and you could keep chickens and bees. And 
And uh, I think uh, I saw something about the town of Brookfield changed their ordinance so that you could keep bees in, in Brookfield. And uh, that led me to an internet search to let me to the Milwaukee Waukesha Bee Association, Bee Club. And uh, that was last a year, a year ago at this time. And um, okay. so I ordered my bees through the winter, took a bunch of classes, and then took ownership of these little creatures um, on April 2nd, not April 1st, very important. Yeah, that, and, uh, I want to jinx it on April 1st. Right. And uh, it's sometimes I'm a bee haver and sometimes I'm a beekeeper. Uh, I'm Bob probably is familiar with that, that statement. And sometimes they're teaching me and sometimes I'm sort of managing them, um, but I've uh, been fascinated by them. So in a sense, you, you both had an awareness of crops and animals and creation and then kind of one thing led to another. Bob, tell us a little bit, I mean, just talk for a little bit about the bees. Uh, they can sting, they make honey. Have you been stung as a beekeeper? I do have to say, uh, I think in almost every case I was ever stung, I decided to go out to the bee yard and just kind of poke around and see what, what they were doing. I didn't bring any equipment with, so I didn't wear a jacket or a veil or anything. And so I thought, well, I kind of looked and I said, yeah, this looks interesting. I started opening up the hives and looking around and uh, with no equipment on. <laughs> and, I, and then I got stung. Uh, uh, so, that yeah. sounds so like you, Bob. I mean, just yeah. being curious and diving into it and oops. <laughs> so I think pretty much any time I've had my jacket, well, it's a hat and jacket combination and gloves on, I really have never gotten stung. Where do you keep your bees? I have had them. Uh, there was a farm property here on, on North Avenue and Watertown Plank Road that I've kept in the last several years. Okay. However, that property was put up for sale. There's, I think, there's a 13 or 30 acres there. But I just moved in this, this last spring to, or last fall, uh, out to Oconomowoc. They're right near Silver Lake. A friend of mine has an 18-acre farm there. And so they're out uh, there and they're, this is about, I, I don't know why, but it's the location, it's the year, but this is the best they've done in the last uh, six or eight years. Interesting. Wow. Steve, how about you? Where, where, I mean, you, it sounds like you're keeping your bees at your house right now or, or not. Uh, well, no. Yes. That was the initial plan. And then um, I learned a few things that uh, bees like uh, chlorine and pool and my neighbor has a pool across the oh. way and uh, keeping bees in an urban environment, you really have to, um, make sure your neighbors are on board. And that's actually stipulated in the license or agreement that you get through the uh, uh, city of Brookfield. So I ordered the bees without really having a place for them to go. And uh, so I was hustling. And um, uh, uh, I uh, learned of a, a gentleman who's starting an apple farm. And apples are obligatory pollination by bees. Okay. So, uh, so that was a, a nice fit. So he had a... Uh, Apiary, two out yards. One is outside of uh, uh, Waukesha West High School. That's where his apple farm is. He's got 10 acres. And he's sort of starting a gentleman farm. And then um, a produce farmer in North Prairie was looking for a beekeeper. Um, the beekeeper was there for 10 years and then um, uh, uh, some hives died and she moved on and he went two years without a beekeeper and his produce some also uh, produce requires obligatory pollination yeah, yeah. wasn't doing very well so he was recruiting so we had some discussions I had some reservations about going to an agricultural site with uh, spraying and pesticides um, but it's worked out wonderfully um, mm -hmm. and 
I must be doing a good job because he mows the lane. It's a half out. It's a half mile lane to where the bees oh, are. Oh, wow. Okay. He, mow, he mows the lanes for me, so must he be wants doing okay. you. He wants you to get there, right? Yeah. Wow, fascinating. So, as long as you're talking, Steve, why don't why don't you keep going? So, a real simple thing that I think uh, you know, depending on who's listening, may or may not kind of be tracking it. Can you just like give us a visual? or a, a verbal description of what a honeybee looks like, maybe compared to a yellow jacket or a bumblebee or, you know, similar creatures. Yeah. So um, uh, first it's the beat frequency of their wings. You can really discern what type of bee is coming near you or, or at you or around you. It's very interesting. And that would be hard to describe at the frequency and the frequency changes as they get, um, annoyed by you um, ah. and they really only get annoyed by you when you're near their hive that's where they become defensive so uh, when I'm in the hive as opposed to what Bob had mentioned I'm a new beekeeper so I'm in full drag the entire time that I'm yep, yep. around them and I can hear their beat frequency change and I can discern that that's a yellow jacket or a honeybee uh, by how the, their beat frequency sounds so unfortunately I can't emulate that but uh, a honeybee um, collects pollen by shaking uh, the pollen all over their body. So they have these hairs. So fuzzy bees uh, almost uniformly are either uh, in that genus of um, bee, a honeybee or a bumblebee, okay. or shiny, smooth, uh, no, no hair is the other stinging insects who can sting repeatedly as opposed to a honeybee in a mammal, it's one and done. So they make okay. wise choices if they're going to sting you. And when they're away from their hives, it's usually if you inadvertently step on them or squeeze them, um, pick up a tool where they're on, or they'll sting you. They're usually only out to gather their nectar. Um, but if you're messing with their hive, they'll ping you a couple times and then they'll scold you and then they'll really sting you. They'll really get, get after you. And it hurts. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think I've been stung by all of them except a bumblebee at some point. I've never had that happen. But wow, that's a, that is a great little thing. I mean, the hairiness versus the, the smoothness of the exterior. Bob, how about if you take us a little bit through uh, a hive? Like, how is that organized? Who's all in there? I'd like to just add uh, to Steve's. The color of bees, they range from sort of, if you look at the abdomen, it's generally amber to black, and it's striped. Uh, okay. It's about uh, half an inch, the average European honeybee, there's about seven different varieties, are half to three quarters of an inch long. The other thing is that uh, honeybees are vegetarian insects. Uh, they only collect oh, pollen and nectar yeah. as okay. their food sources. So the wasps, yellow jackets, you'll see them this time of year attacking, your, eating your hamburgers and other, just about anything. Okay, honeybees never gonna do that. Correct. Okay. Correct. Well, within the hive, you've got really four distinct classes of insects. So you've got the queen, of course, the workers, uh, the drones, and the brood. The queen, of course, is the most important uh, individual in the hive. Uh, her job is really to lay eggs. She, when the queen is born, she leaves. She goes on a mating flight maybe once or twice and then she comes back to a hive. And at that point, uh, she's somewhat a slave. Uh, she never leaves that hive again, unless she's superseded by a new queen. So she's hmm. really uh, trapped in that hive and all she does is lay eggs, up to a couple thousand eggs a day, depending on the, on the season. So uh, she also 
somewhat controls the hive, but she emits uh, pheromones. It's sort of a smells, I'll say. And the bees, all the bees within the hive get used to that and they become loyal to her. And so one hive can, is differentiated by the hive right next to it because of these pheromones the queens emit. It's sort okay. of, they're unique to each, each queen. Next to the queen, we have the workers. The workers are all female. Uh, they perform all the work in the hive. They raise the brood, they forage for food, uh, they bring back water to cool the hive and to, and to uh, su supply water to the, to the other uh, members. Uh, they're the workers and they're all female. You also have uh, drones. Drones are created each season. Those are the male bees. And uh, interesting enough, the only bees that can sting are the females. They have a stinger. The drones don't have a stinger. Uh, the drones are this, just there. They don't really do anything. They're sort of uh, lazy and uh, they just hang out in the hive. And each day they go at a certain time on, uh, for these mating flights with the queens that may be out there. So, but they don't contribute anything to the hive. Uh, and each fall, generally, they are kicked out by the workers and they perish. So ah. each spring, the queen, will, well, the workers actually create new drones from the eggs which are laid by the queen. Uh, lastly, you have the brood, which is really just the eggs which are laid by the queen into the cells and which are taken care of by the workers. And uh, how those eggs are fed and treated by the workers determines if it becomes a worker, a drone, or a queen. The queens are a little unique. They will not be put in a normal cell. The, the, the hive, the, the workers actually determine everything that happens in the hive. Uh, if they decide that there's not enough space or for other reasons, they'll create these queen cells. It's a cell which is off the side of the normal uh, frame. And within that, the, the same egg goes in there, but it's fed royal jelly uh, by the workers and that becomes a queen. I'll let you go with that. Uh, just keep going a little further. So if they create another queen, does that new queen then fly away and start her the next hive, or does she like take over the no the existing one? What happens? The workers will determine that they determine that there's it's time for supersedure, so they'll create multiple cells five, ten, eight, twelve cells. Each one will get an egg. They'll create all these queens, and the first queen to emerge will emerge from that cell, and then will make her way around the inside the hive and sting through the other cells and kill the other potential queens that are there. Wow. Even herself as the only queen. And then the old queen, there's no uh, fighting room between the new and old queen. The old queen gets together and about half the hive uh, gets together with her. They send out foragers and they, they look for a new place to live. And when they find that, they come back, communicate to the, to the old queen and they swarm to that new location. It's generally fairly close to where they're living. Okay. Wow, what a fascinating process. We'll get back to you, Steve, but uh, like how long does your average queen bee live? Two years? Five years? Uh, a queen bee can live five to seven years. Really? Wow. Uh, but really what beekeepers are looking at is how well the queen is producing, how she's laying. They'll look at the uh, frame where the brood is living, and they look for a nice even pattern that she's laying a lot. And what I've noticed, uh, having bees all this, this last year, I've gotten one or two feral bee colonies. They ended up in the backyard here. And I just can't believe the difference between the bees I've gotten, uh, packages of bees, and the feral queen. The feral queen has been absolutely nuclear. Uh, probably three times the number of bees in the hive. I've had to add multiple uh, brood chambers because the thing just, they just keep producing. When I keep looking in the hive, wow. it's just overflowing. So uh, okay. just a big difference between the feral bees, which has survived on their yep. own, 
and those which are uh, coming from commercial beekeepers where they, they continually raise queens, grab bees from their excess bees and put them together and send them off. Wow. Okay, we're going to come back to that, but we're going to jump over to S- Steve. So now we've kind of heard a little bit about the hive and the queen. Take us through your kind of the life of the worker bee. What's the worker bee doing in and outside of the hive? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, uh, very fascinating how all the decision-making is uh, made in the hive. And it is this collective decision-making by a colony. So it, it, which I find fascinating. And uh, the glue holding things together are the pheromone for the queen. But if the queen isn't living up to her or her responsibilities, forming eggs and generating brood and being healthy, and make a collective decision to uh, supersede her. Right, uh, but she, right. will have to, she will have to lay an egg, they will nurture it, and then they will kill her. And then a new queen is uh, uh, developed. So there's these chores from egg through the stage of the honeybee where you go from egg, larva, pupa to adult. And uh, there are very defined responsibilities. The oldest of the adult bee is the worker bee. So these chores within the hives, clean the cells out, take care of the larvae, you have to feed them um, before they capped over and, and pupate uh, into an adult bee is done by nurse bees. And so that's a, a, a role and responsibility of a, a bee that doesn't leave the hive is to nurse its young. Then there'll be undertakers to remove dead bees from the hive. There'll be guard bees who will defend against the hive. They sort of pop themselves up, spread their wings and check everyone coming into the hive entrance whether they belong or there are potential robbers coming in to take away the honey stores. But the last uh, responsibility of the adult bee is to go out and forage. So the, in the summer months, the, uh, the adult bee leaves about 45 days. They are continuously working during daylight hours of going out, finding a nectar source, flying back in. And depending on the race, the genus species, and then the race, they are, they, Italians might make four or five flights out a day, or if you have a Russian race, they might take five or 10 flights out a day to go collect um, uh, honey. And they come back and uh, they find, uh, you know, a gold mine of, I'm sorry, not honey, nectar, uh, a gold mine of nectar. They will communicate that to their other co-foragers by a special vibratory and dance on, called a waggle dance on the comb. And it changes as the, it's reference to the sun's altitude. So they don't see very well, but they have exquisite sense of smell. But they can return to this nectar source by, by describing where it is and communicating to their coworkers on the wow. frame. That's just um, crazy. Through it. Yeah, it is, it's amazing how they, how they do this. Can, can I just interrupt and say, so hypothetically, a bee could find, a forager could find a good nectar source go back and do the dance, and the others could get to it without following the bee. Right. So uh, That's crazy. Early on, uh, some bee finders would, uh, if you wanted to uh, find a wild hive, you can um, trap bees and uh, mark them, and then they'll go back to their hive, and then they'll come back to your source of, let's say you've had a sugar source in the field, and then you can lead you back to the hive. So they come back to this source. It's fascinating how they can do that. They go back and forth. And so as uh, the seasons change, the responsibilities change. And 
Um, now we're coming to the close, the last in our area, pollen source will be goldenrod, pollen and nectar. Pollen being the protein source and nectar being the carbohydrate source to mm. generate mm -hmm. um, nutritional requirements that they require in the holland, in the hive, that they will start raising bees and, uh, through that same process that uh, Bob described, but uh, generate bees that are going to last or live much longer to get through winter. So the two objectives of the bee come spring is to reproduce by swarming and winter is to prepare mm -hmm. for winter to bring in their nutrients and carbohydrate source. And so these uh, winter bees that uh, we're trying to foster, raise and help them raise and, and help them raise in a, in a healthy manner are, uh, have a life expectancy about six months. We'll get through winter get and through have winter. a thermogenesis responsibility. Um, for the hive through to get through winter. Okay, this is a really simple question, but so they're bringing back nectar and pollen. They bring it back on their body. How do they actually transport it? I'm I'm still going yeah. to Steve on that one. So they have these uh, pollen baskets, and so they shake a stamen. I think that's the flower part that has the where the pollen is is near. They'll cover themselves in pollen, they'll brush it off and stuff it in these sort of saddlebags that are on their hind legs. And uh, if you uh, watch as they enter, return to the hive, you'll see um, different colored pollens over the course of the summer, whichever is uh, highest or prevalent in your area. Right now, I think the color of the pollen is uh, sort of whitish or yellowish. Maybe it's coming from corn or another pollen source or earlier in the summer it was orange um, so they stuff this pollen into their saddlebag mm -hmm. the nectar they have a special um, pouch uh, apparatus in their mouth and they bring that back and they'll transfer that to a house bee who then transfers it to the cell packs it into the cell and then another duty of some house bees is to fan it and desiccate it and when it reaches the right um, concentration of water they'll cap it over the wax and they'll be put up for winter so that'll be their food reserve for winter another area where they'll put pollen and cover that with a different enzyme that, um, that will change that into what's bee bread it's a sort of a, a protein source and those are usually surrounding the young brood area will be a pollen source and then a nectar source so the frame is a rectangle in the center will be a football shape of uh, brood followed by a rim of pollen, followed by, in the corners, honey, capped honey. So they are, they are structural engineers in addition to everything else. That's, it's just mind-boggling. So, Bob, I've seen kind of different arrangements for how beekeepers keep their hives. I'm sure there's tons of science and, and detail into that, but I mean, if I want to see your hives, what would they just describe how it would look to me? Well, the, the most common hives uh, are the Langstroth hive. And that was, uh, Langstroth was, a, I believe he was a pastor. And uh, he, he came up, it just, by, I don't know, by accident, he, I don't recall, I've got his book. It's still uh, produced today when, from 1850, I think. But wow. about that time is when he figured out bee space. And that's, that's the space that the bees like within the hive, between the comb, and the body, the frames, the inner covers. And I think it's a quarter to three of an inch. They like that space. If it's, if it's larger than that, they're gonna to tend to fill it with either propolis or honeycomb. If not, then it, if it's too small, they just won't use it. But 
Mm -hmm. uh, Langstroth came up with the hive, and it's it's the Langstroth hive. There's lots of different types. There's wear hives, and uh, well, I can't think of the other. There's many, many different types, but the Langstroth is the most common, and it's made up of uh, several parts. You have the uh, just starting really from the top down. You have the you have a cover. Under the cover is an, is what they call and it's called a telescoping cover. It comes out and over the sides of the hive to protect mm -hmm. it from from really the weather, the rain. And, okay. Uh, no. Then you have an inner cover, which is it's just a flat. Uh, generally, a piece of uh, oh, it's like plywood with a small slot in the top where they they can get up and above, and air can travel through. Below that, you'll have generally at this time of year you'll have your honey supers. There are boxes which there's two different heights uh, depending on how heavy you want it to be when you want to lift them off when they're full. Uh, so that you have the honey supers. Below that, then are the brood chambers, and then typically you'll have two. In some cases, like my uh, feral hive, you might have three or four. Uh, and those are generally, I think they're about nine to 11 inches. I can't remember the exact dimensions. So the, the honey supers are shorter. They're around six inches. The uh, brood boxes, which are the lower boxes, are larger, have larger frames. Uh, those are nine or 11 or something. And then below that, you've got a, a bottom board. And those are, the, those are the essential components, right? The, the really the five pieces. There's a lot of other things that you can put in there. There's feeders, there's excluders. Uh, there's screens you can put on top and bottom for the summer uh, so that the, the screens I use because the, uh, it allows the bees to use more of the resources to collect nectar rather than using their energy to cool the hive, bringing water droplets back mm -hmm. and having the fan and move air through. And if I'm looking at this from the outside, what are kind of the dimensions of this on the outside? I think roughly they're 15 by 22. That's the length and width. And then the height, I said the, the uh, I believe the- Inches. Inches, yeah. Okay. Like 15 by 22, roughly. And then the, the bottom boxes will be, I think they're around 10 inches. The honey supers, are, which are on the top, they're, they're shallower. Those are around six inches. And there are some that are a little shallower than that. Uh, there's different, because they're not as heavy. Okay. So, and how, how, I'll ask this of each of you, but we'll start with Bob. How, how many of those do you maintain? Personally, well, uh, like everything that I do in life, I collect more than I need. So, <laughs> my, I've got loads of box. I've got to get rid of some of this. I've got I've got too much of everything. But I, you always keep spares because I like to in the fall. What I've been doing lately is I like to change out the boxes every year or two because it gives me a chance to clean them out, paint them, uh, make sure there's nothing in there. Uh, so so I'll swap like I'll swap the bottom boards this fall. Because I've got screen ones on, I'll put solid ones on, which will keep them warmer in the winter. Uh, yeah. uh, the boxes also, I have lots of spare boxes, honey supers. I, I, I'll swap all those around. The supers, the honey supers come off because we'll be removing the honey, but the uh, brood chamber boxes, well, the, the, the brood chamber boxes, those uh, I'll change out yeah, once every year, every other year. And typically, too, the frames I've been doing is replacing, there's typical equipment has 10 frames per box whatever type of box it is. Okay. So I'll try each year to replace in each box three frames. And the reason being is that it has to do with some of the uh, things that have been killing bees like colony collapse disorder. They find that over time, the bees are exposed to all types of things as they travel around to collect nectar, but they bring whatever they, their bodies are exposed to, they bring back to the hive and it gets in contact with the wax uh, in the frames mm -hmm. and it tends to build up uh, in that wax. And so by changing three frames every year, that wax is new and it doesn't get the chance to get to a lethal level, whether it's pesticide or whatever is in there. Uh, and so the, it, it helps the bees. 
Okay. Well, so same, same question to Steve. And then Steve, can you also comment on what kind of Bob just started with, which is what are some of the primary threats to a, a bee colony or beehive? Yeah, I mean, just fascinated that these things were developed, this, um, this uh, hive construction changing from these wicker baskets called skeps to uh, woodenware hives, these rectangular boxes in the 1800s, where if we look back, people were a lot shorter, but man, they must have been a lot stronger because full of brood and honey and nectar and pollen, these bigger boxes, the deep boxes can weigh up to 100 pounds. And depending on wow. where they are ergonomically, that's really very difficult to lift. <laughs> and so these reduced size uh, boxes can be even 60 pounds. So some people migrate to the smaller boxes called mediums or shallows because they're just enormously heavy or make the rectangle smaller to an eight frame box just to get around the, the weight requirement. Mm. But the standard is these enormous boxes, which I find kind of, wow. okay. <laughs> kind of dangerous to be picking this stuff up yeah. full of bees. And if you trip or fall or drop mm. it, guess what happens? Yeah. So they don't they're really not happy. It. They are not happy with you. So I have a, I have a 10 hives and, um, two deep boxes per hive and three medium supers per hive is sort of the rule to start out with. But if okay. you have a very productive hive like Bob has, you can easily exceed those three hives. So if you don't have the woodenware on time, you have to either make it fast or take it, extract it, and put it back on. But you, probably the, one of the most important things is in beekeeping is anticipation, trying to figure mm -hmm. out what they're gonna need next, what's gonna happen next. So this time of year, the, uh, the main, sort of pathogen that's really changed beekeeping and having bees is this uh, parasite called Varroa destructor. It came over from sort of Asia into the US in about the 80s. And before then, beekeeping was much more easier than it is to, to, to manage now. And so this population of mites is increasing in peak population in, in summer. And in the fall, the bee population is declining, but the mite population is increasing. So the mite population bores into the bee uh, directly into their equivalent of a liver and transmits as a vector for other viruses. And that in uh, current thought process is the major cause for colony collapse disorder is really this uh, parasite called mites. And how you mm. manage your mites determines whether you're going to be successful in overwintering. Mites are about the size of a pinhead. You can see them with the naked eye. They live in the cell, they reproduce in the cell when it's capped over, come out and then intercalate between the chitin plates of a honeybee and uh, fall off and then ride onto another honeybee. They go through three life cycles and you try to keep your mite load in the phoretic stage, which is that stage of the mite that rides on bees, to under 2%. I have a couple of hives that, are, uh, that I've tested monthly and then they've populated are increased in mite load to about 10%. And so those are really at risk to not make it through winter. And I'm trying to manage those with really non-toxic chemicals because part of the, the dilemma that we're faced is, is it agrochemicals or is it a chemical that the beekeeper is using to control mites that gets uh, into the wax that causes uh, these queens that once lived seven years that are only living one or two seasons. And so a good approach to make it through winter is good nutrition, good young queen and a really low mite load is a, a recipe that can get you through winter. Oh. So I'm hoping that 
I can get the mite load down while these long-lived winter bees are, are developing, have them well-fed, feed bees actually was something that was surprising me to learn. Uh, you feed them in the spring and in the fall where there isn't a plethora of nectar source and, and a substitute mm -hmm. protein mm -hmm. called pollen substitute in order to make these uh, strong bees to sort of get through winter. So um, Varroa destructor is an uh, interesting name. Is uh, yeah. So 80% of all, estimated 80% of the, all bees mortality can be attributed to this parasite. Yeah, it really is uh, difficult and um, is a major reason that we're having uh, really honeybees are really threatened, threatened from loss of agricultural land that they can pollinate mm -hmm. as we change to green lawns and not having pollinator friendly gardens to uh, widespread use of agrochemicals and then this uh, unrestrained pathogen called Varroa. The Apis serenia, the uh, Asian honeybee, didn't have such a dilemma and could lead a life in, in, in concert with this pathogen. But Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, doesn't have those same so, qualities and, yeah. and can't keep it in check. And uh, they can just run through a hive. And, um, hives that die in August uh, are ones wow. that a very yep. difficult pathogen to control. Bob, you had mentioned the relatively crazy productivity and strength of the feral bees. So one of my questions was, do feral bees even exist anymore? But it appears they do. Thinking of what, what Steve was just talking about, have you, as, as you've observed these feral bees, do they seem like more resistant to the mites or can't you tell that? I can't tell that, but, but I think that they are. There's, I, I can't think of all the details uh, right now, Pastor John, but they do have maybe a little more resistance to the mites perhaps, but they found a way to survive uh, in the wild. So they're just, they're stronger. So I, I'm gonna treat them all this fall. I'll, I'll use oxalic acid, which is a natural uh, sort of thing. It's been real successful. And I did treat them last year. Not, I don't think, I did treat the feral hive last year. So. Uh, all, all the hives, so I'll treat them again this fall with oxalic acid here soon. I, I'm not sure how they, how they all survive. They're feral. They're out there. They could yeah. be from bees that escape from a regular hive, but they seem to be stronger. The feral bees, to me, and, and talking with other, the other beekeepers who have caught feral bees this summer and the past seasons, they're just they're stronger. You know, genetically superior, it seems, to the commercial bees we're getting. So now I would be remiss if I don't didn't ask two things that I think people always wonder about. One of which is how much honey do you make, and just what's it like going up to this hive filled with thousands of bees and sticking your hand in there or something? I mean, Bob, why do you take a stab at that, and then we'll see if Steve's answer is similar or different. A really good producing hive, you might get somewhere between 40 to, you can get as much as 100 pounds, maybe more on a- Wow, on a seriously, yeah. that's crazy. The thing is too, that uh, typically the bees have to travel to about 2 million flowers to produce 16 ounces or one pound of honey. So if you do the math, it's a, it's a crazy number thing. That's why you need this feral hive where there's maybe 80,000 bees or more. Uh, they're capable, there's, they have the numbers to produce the honey. So, so a really well-producing hive could be 40 to 80 to 100 pounds of honey. And what was your other question? Or the, 
Um, just tell us about the personal experience of walking up to a hive and sticking your hand in there or whatever. You just have to have confidence in the equipment. Like I, I wear a jacket and gloves. Uh, my friend Andy, who's he's a commercial beekeeper, he just wears a hat. That's it. He goes in barehanded and he uh, he's just an expert. But you sort of have to you build confidence knowing, oh, okay, they really you can't get into your uh, bee suit, so you're you're safe, even though they're all over you. Uh, and they're buzzing, and there's always the the guards. The guards, you can really hear the frequency of their, you can hear how aggressive they are trying to get in at you through the mask. Or, oh, interesting. Uh, wow. You just kind of, I just put it aside. You, you get confidence, I guess, after you do it a number of times. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I got in, you know, removed the frames, whatever you had to do with the, with the hive. So, and also, if you're not digging through there, if you're really not pulling the boxes apart, they really don't bother you. They're really busy just doing their work. Certain times of year too, like when it gets real hot out, they kind of get aggravated. They don't like it real hot. They like warmth, but they don't like, just like us, they don't like it hot and humid. So there's certain times of year that they're a little more aggressive and they're coming after a little bit more than, uh, than others. So when it's 90 degrees out, might not be the time to visit the box, huh? It's sometimes, yeah. Other times you know, you'll see them on the outside of the box trying to cool off and they're so busy trying to cool off, they don't bother you. Okay. But it, okay. I've seen it vary. Uh, you just never know. Okay. How about you, Steve? You're a little newer at it. Uh, tell us about kind of your confidence level and walk it up to a hive. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's all good in book and on paper, but uh, you learn a lot from the hive. And so fortunately, the Milwaukee um, Waukesha Bee Association has a cooperative hive uh, apiary, and you can volunteer and go visit. And so I did that a couple um, just to make sure that I was okay with the whole process of being around 50,000 stinging in insects. Um, and you, we all have to remember that some of us are allergic to bee sting, bee, bee venom. So I kind of researched that. And that turns out to be about 4% of the population. So numbers are you with you, but you really want to make sure that you're comfortable being around bees and that you don't have extreme allergy to bee. The smoker is a wonderful age-old tool to help you uh, help the bees. And so the smoke will interrupt the pheromone communication, but uh, if they release their alarm pheromone or if your smoker dies and you, and you can't interrupt that alarm pheromone, look out, <laughs> they, will, they will come after they you. They will come after um, you. They will, yeah. They, you know, and uh, we, we like to say that they're defensive um, and, and not so much, they're not really aggressive, but they're more defensive at certain times as Bob alluded to in a hot, humid day if you're messing around in the hive, if you're in there too long, you want to move slowly, cautiously, purposefully, and, um, and not squish them. Because when you squish them, there are a lot of bees, they will release their alarm pheromones. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you can get to the point where you're comfortable working barehanded, you can feel them around oh. your hands and you, you can have greater dexterity. These uh, very protected elbow length gloves are sort of clumsy and often will be having this vicious cycle of squishing bees and they get more and more agitated. They'll ping my veil and uh, the bee frequency goes up. Um, I don't really have the luxury of time because I'm working as well as probably Bob and the rest of us are to, to say, okay, it's a bad time. Let me put you all back together and we'll come back at a different time. There's certain set chores that, that need to take place. And so I sort of, sort of power through them sometimes, but trying to get to the point where I can be, I think uh, like Andy, who's Bob is uh, referring to, that I can be barehanded, feel comfortable. 
I don't think I'll ever be to the point of not wearing a veil. You can be blinded by a stung to your, to your cornea. Um, the lethal dose of venom is about 10,000 stings. I've only had one or two at a time. It's quite painful. And uh, the day two is the worst. It's the immediate pain on um, that first hour, but day two, the pruritus is unbelievable. You gotta be careful with your hands if you're wearing jewelry, because it could swell and you could really oh, lose yeah. your finger. So they say to go visit your hive without jewelry on, um, without deodorant, uh, being well bathed. The bees appreciate that. And move slowly and make sure you have a smoker with you. As a new beekeeper, right. those are right. the things that have worked well for me. And I, I haven't been stung for the last several months. I'm really trying to get to the point where I'm comfortable and have a good dexterity. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they're very curious. They'll walk over your hands and um, check you out. And as long as everybody's calm, um, they're You'd like to reach out and pet them, but they don't really appreciate that. But they're probably, a really fascinating little creature. <laughs> wow. Well, we should we should be getting close to, to wrapping up. So, Steve, I'll, I'll kind of end with one for you and then one for Bob. So, Steve, what's the answer to the question of, as a beekeeper, how do you kind of know how much honey to take and how much to leave? Yeah, so I, I'm a... I've uh, harvested 180 pounds from four hives, four production hives, and I was able to reproduce to move from four hives to 10 hives. So I harvested honey and reproduce making, it's called splits into smaller colony nucleus, with the idea that these, you want to go into winter with twice as many bees because there's a considerable die off, particularly as a, a new beekeeper. And uh, you have to be careful about how much honey, because that's the resource they need to get through winter. And it's the preferred food source, natural pollen and, and honey, as opposed to feeding them sugar water and a mm -hmm. substitute protein source. And so I was told to target in, in Wisconsin about 100 pounds. And so you weigh the hives and uh, weigh the bodies and substitute, uh, subtract the wooden wear from the weight and trying to get them at 100. So I was, I'm pretty conservative. I've, a couple of very uh, productive hives that uh, have more than that. The dilemma is to try to get it into the brood box to get it close to the to where they're going to winter. So they're in a upper box and I'm trying to figure out how to get it down into the lower box. They, they move it around, but I'm kind of afraid it's kind of far from where they're going to cluster. They don't, they sit in a sort of a sphere and they move very slowly through the winter and move up. The honey food source is far away. They could starve to death. Mm -hmm. so honey, okay. about 100 pounds in, in Wisconsin is uh, recommended. So they made uh, 50 pounds per hive above that. So just incredible. Wow. Maybe that's why they're so short-lived. They're just constantly going out. Yeah, yeah. More and more and more and bring it back in. Busy as a bee, hey? <laughs> so, Bob, maybe maybe a place to end is, is how, how can... How can we help the bees, I guess? What, what are things that the average person can do to protect or enhance honeybees? Conscientious use of pesticides. I think uh, the, there's a component of pesticides, it's called a neonicotinoid, and they found that that is what's killing, it's very effective insecticide, but that's what's killing a lot of the bees. So okay. conscientious use of uh, fertilizers, pesticides, uh, things like that, okay. in nature does help. Does, does the average gardener, are there any particular plants that would be really advantageous to grow? There are. There are uh, 
plant species which bees uh, prefer. Uh, I couldn't tell you what there are. There's a list. I, I actually have a list here at home. I'd have to look it up, but it's pretty easily found that there are. So you get um, to search for it on the internet. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and okay. They, they do prefer those. Uh, they help support the bees. It's just it's just good, uh, I guess, for the environment and everything too. So. Cool. And it sounds like both of you are hooked. You're not giving it up anytime soon. No, I, I think for myself, I may eventually move to the smaller eight-frame boxes and shorter because, uh, as Steve was saying, it, it, there's a lot of weight. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm breaking down mechanically. Oh, Bob. <laughs> I may be moving to that. Uh, one last thing, too, I want to mention. I, I'm not sure if we spoke about it earlier, of the importance of bees, but uh, within the agricultural areas of our country, bees are responsible for, they say, about $30 billion a year in crops as well as of the foods that we eat that are that require pollination some do some don't bees do are responsible for about i think it's about 70 percent of that pollination i think it's 70 70 80 percent i think it's quite high the other thing is is that the the pollination by the bees can increase there's been some studies done by i think it was uh it's berkeley or something that yield can be increased by up to 71 percent uh, from bee pollination wow one other thing I also wanted to mention, I had just seen in the last three days, is that in, I think it's Australia, they've been doing some studies with bee venom. And they've, uh, I mean, it's very early, who knows where it'll lead to, but they found that using bee venom, they were doing a sort of a clinical subtype of breast cancer, right? And they were able to destroy triple negative breast cancer cells with, with this extraction mm. they've made wow. from bee venom. So it's something uh, pretty yeah. interesting. Awesome. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, all of these... Just touching on that as a topic, all of the potential cures or therapies in the natural world that we haven't even discovered yet, but but maybe we'll do. Steve, you're newer at it, but it sounds like you're you're hooked on it, huh? Beekeeping. Yeah, I, I certainly am. I am. Uh, I'm fascinated by the uh, colony structure and the colony communication. Um, I feel an obligation or some sort of uh, responsibility to get them through winter and uh, to, to manage um, their mite load. I'm hoping that I can get to the point where I can develop a, a group of bees that are resistant to mites or are able to control their mites without uh, additional chemicals or pesticides applied to the hive. And I, I think uh, the uh, helping the farmer increases productivity. I can really see real time the, the, the benefit um, mm -hmm. um, of, of honeybees. Uh, yeah, fascinating hobby. Some people make it their livelihood or their second income. I think for me, I'll stay at a hobby, trying to rein in the OCD so that 15 doesn't become 30 next year. If it becomes 60, we'll have to see how that goes, but uh, we'll see. Cool. Well, I am so appreciative of both of you for your interest and, and passion for something that, you know, feeds us directly with, with the honey as kind of a nice treat, but I mean, really feeds us and so many other people because of what they do as pollinators. So I just appreciate your, your kind of passion for beekeeping. Uh, so to Bob Zimbinski, uh, Steve Dolan, thank you so much for being a part of uh, Belief Beat today. And for anybody who's listening, uh, thanks for being a part of it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and look bees up on the internet and do a little research and maybe plant a few plants that'll make their environment uh, a little more rich in some uh, nectar and pollen. If not this year, I guess it's a little late in Wisconsin, but maybe that's what you can be planning uh, over the winter for next summer. So thanks for listening to Belief Beat. Goodbye for now.